Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast, the Well, We're Moving On Up edition, as we take an in-depth look at the Bengals draft class with one of the best analysts in football, Greg Cosell from NFL Films and the ESPN Matchup Show. Did the Bengals get it right by taking Jamar Chase fifth overall instead of Panay Sewell? Greg Cosell says, yes, we'll discuss that and much more. Plus, I'll spend a few minutes with second-round draft pick Jackson Carmen, and then my broadcast partner Dave Lapham joins me to discuss the Bengals' Ring of Honor ballot and answer the questions you submitted on Twitter. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since my mom. Since Mother's Day is this weekend, I want to take a moment to say how grateful I am to be the son of Diane Bailey. One of the reasons I followed my childhood dream of becoming a sports broadcaster is that my mom is the type of person who decides that she wants to do something and then goes for it. Although she did not attend college, she's been successful in multiple careers, including interior design and buying and selling antiques. When she was younger, she dabbled in acting, and after turning 70, she decided to learn how to play the cello, all while raising five extremely lucky kids. So, happy Mother's Day, Mom, and thanks. Now, let's get to football. There are a few things more worthless than instantaneous NFL draft grades. It generally takes about three years to have a good sense of how productive a team's draft is. And yet, every year, the first thing I do on the Sunday morning after the draft is check out every draft grade I can find. I just can't help myself. This year, the Bengals mostly got B-pluses and Bs, and often got dinged for not taking Panay Sewell in the first round. But one of the opinions I value most belongs to Greg Cosell, and he says the Bengals got it right. All right, this is a real treat for me and the listeners of this podcast, an opportunity to discuss the draft and free agency with the great Greg Cosell. You did in-depth scouting reports on six of the players that the Bengals wound up drafting. Let's start with Jamar Chase. You had him ranked as the number one wide receiver in this year's draft. In your scouting report, the word physical appears seven times. The (laughs) The word strong or strength appear six times. Is that what jumped off the screen when you studied Jamar Chase? That and competitive. That was probably another word that you noticed on my scouting report. I really loved watching him. I actually watched him last summer. I did not know that he would sit out the season. Hey, last summer, I didn't even know if there'd be a season. So, uh, but I, so I watched him last summer. Um, I really loved his tape. And as you know, Dan, everything I talk about comes from just pure tape study. I don't meet the players. I don't know all their backgrounds. I'm sitting in my office. Uh, Last year, I was home for obvious reasons, but I sit in my office at NFL Films, and I watch tape. And I loved Chase's game. I loved his competitiveness. I loved the way he defeated press coverage, which he'll have to do in the NFL. He played a lot of boundary acts, which means he lined up on the ball. And you get press when you're on the ball and the corner is closer to you. So you have to be able to win against press. Um, He ran a ton of slants. And keep in mind, the NFL game now, you know, there's a ton of RPOs. There's a ton of quick game. And you run a lot of those quick inbreakers, the three-step slants or the five-step glance routes, they call them. Um, And he could take it to the house. He was very competitive run after catch. Uh, as you saw in my notes, that I don't sit around after I watch a player, Dan, and say, who does he remind me of? It either hits me or it doesn't hit me. And I thought there was some Steve Smith in his game, just the competitive intensity with which he played, I, I thought was tremendous. I, I loved his tape, and I think that he'll be a really good player. And say what you will, but I thought what he did at his pro day speaks to his commitment because he didn't play football this year and he came out obviously had been training hard and had put up phenomenal pro day numbers as i think you know there was a huge debate among bengals fans as to whether they were team sewell or team chase should the Bengals go for the offensive lineman in round one or for the wide receiver in round one did you have strong feelings i did um to me chase is truly special and i think that you needed him more 
that you could get an offensive lineman later, as they did. We'll discuss Jackson Carmen shortly. But I like Sewell a lot. There's nothing not to like about Panay Sewell. I just think when you have a chance to get a player who is a true game breaker, and you know, the nature of the NFL now, as you know, Dan, is offensively, what are you trying to do? Create explosive plays. Defensively, what are you trying to do? Stop explosive plays. That's the NFL game. That's the Cliff Notes version. And I just think that there weren't receivers as good as Chase. The drop-off was much bigger, whereas the drop-off to me, and I know others disagree, that's fine. You know, I like to think reasonable people can disagree, you know? Um, But I thought the drop-off with Sewell to other tackles as you move through the second round was not going to be as great as as the drop-off for me between Chase and the receivers that would be there in the second round. The Bengals have two really good receivers already in Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins, but neither neither guy has great speed, and Chase does. How important is that? Well, you'd always like to have a guy that can uh, be a vertical dimension and that can change the way the defense plays because ultimately – you know, what you're trying to do, and I think Burrow is, is great at this to begin with. This was one of the things that came out in his interviews at the Combine when I spoke to a lot of coaching friends of mine. Burrow is really smart to begin with. But what you're trying to do, as you know, is you're always trying to give the quarterback as much information as possible before the snap of the ball. The great ones win before the snap of the ball. Burrow will, will be that guy. Um, but now you have, you know, Higgins played a lot of X last year, but I think Chase is truly a, an X Higgins, you can move him around. We know Boyd is phenomenal on the slot. He has been for years. Um, So they really have a nice trio of receivers that, you know, obviously uh, Chase could also move around. You you know, you you can put Higgins and Chase wherever you want them. So this is now a really interesting receiving core because Higgins is big. Chase is not small, but he's obviously smaller than Higgins. Um, I, I'd be pretty excited if I was a Bengals fan about this receiving core and, and with Burrow coming back. We're talking to the great Greg Cosell from NFL Films and the NFL Matchup Show on ESPN. Let's move on to Jackson Carmen. The Bengals traded back in the second round and got him at number 46. You wrote that he can be a quality starter in the NFL. What do you like most? Yeah, I like Carmen. You know, it's funny. I was on a little bit of a rampage before the draft because you always hear people say, well, he's a guard. And you heard that with Jackson Carmen. But, you know, at the end of the day, Dan, as you know, you got to line up with 64 offensive tackles every week. Not everybody is Joe Thomas. Not everybody has sweet feet in the perfect length. You know, there's just not 50 Joe Thomases. So you got to still line up with tackles. And Jackson Carmen, you know, actually, I believe he's from Ohio. And I think he was a big time high school player in Ohio. You would know that better than I. Fairfield, Um, Ohio is a Cincinnati suburb, essentially. Well, there you go. So I knew he was from Ohio. I just don't exactly where. Um, but I kind of liked Carmen. I mean, you know, I think he's physical. I think he's aggressive. People will discuss the arm length, which is a little bit less than what is considered ideal for an offensive tackle. I think people like to start at 33 inches. He was 32 and a half. Um, you know, I made this point in my notes. He kind of reminded me of Jack Conklin coming out of Michigan State. And, you know, Conklin's a certain kind of tackle, and Carmen would be a certain kind of tackle. Um but I think, as I said, with, with a lot more of the short passing game, the quick throws, I believe Burrow will be the kind of quarterback as he develops that can make an offensive line better because of the way in which he plays. Um, I think Carmen is a tackle. And I think they, I mean, they drafted him to be a tackle, did they not? He's going to compete for a starting guard spot as a rookie, but Riley Reef only signed a one-year deal. Yeah. So the expectation is maybe he plays a year at guard and then kicks out to tackle. Well, I'll tell you what, the thing, one thing that really stood out watching this kid was a very tenacious playing personality, very competitive, a little nasty, which, you know, that always, as you know, plays well in the offensive line room. So I spoke to former Bengals offensive line coach, Paul Alexander, who Ah, some time. Yeah. He worked with Jackson Carmen to get ready for the draft. And he told me something you'll find interesting. He said that 32 and a half inch measurement was incorrect he measured Jackson Carmen and he said there was another measurement done independently of him after that, uh, that 32 and a half that was published that says that Jackson Carmen's arms are actually 33 and a quarter. So I wonder based on your film study, if he looked like a guy who has better reach than maybe that widely publicized 32 and a half length would indicate. Yeah. 
I'm not an offensive line guru. I'll be totally honest with you. I mean, and Paul, I know Paul Alexander. He's obviously phenomenal. Um, I don't know what that difference means, Dan. I really don't. A lot of studies have been done. I know Joe Banner's done studies. I'm sure all teams do studies of over the years of if arm length is truly a factor. I don't, I haven't done those studies. I don't have that kind of time, you know, to do that. I don't work for a team, but so I don't know what the difference ultimately would be between 32 and a half and 33 and a quarter in, in terms of uh, your evaluation of the player. Um, you know, what his traits are on tape, I don't think change. Uh, and I really like the player on tape. So, uh, you know, I think he's a really good run blocker. He's physical. He's competitive. Um, I thought some of his weaknesses did occur in pass protection. And there will definitely be some, as you know, that will say, oh, he's a guard for sure. Not even don't even put him at tackle. And who knows how that'll play out? You know, maybe he starts at guard and he has a phenomenal year and they feel like he's a guard. You know, it could work out that way. Let's move on to the next two picks in the third round. Joseph Osai from Texas in the fourth round Bengals first fourth round pick cam sample from Tulane, a couple of defensive linemen slash edge rushers with both players. You raved about the intensity that you saw on every snap. Yeah. Joseph Osai was kind of nuts. I mean, he played so freaking hard. Um, <laughs> I think he's got some work to do to develop as a pass rusher. Don't forget, as you probably know, the year prior at Texas, he was a, a stacked backer. He was an off-the-ball player, and he got moved in this past year to basically being an on-the-ball outside linebacker. So, you know, I think he's got some work to do when you talk about his ability to rush the quarterback. Um, but if you want to talk about a guy that plays like his pants are on fire, I mean, this guy, the first thing you notice is how many plays he makes just running around and and. I mean, unbelievable, but he's got heavy hands. Um, I think that's a good start. He's got a strong body. Um, I just think he needs work when you talk about the, the, the skill set that's necessary to rush the quarterback. Um, I think he needs work in the technique of that because uh, he doesn't have a lot of experience doing it. You know, every once in a while, you'd see a flash where he showed some good hand usage, where he showed some bend and ability to corner. But those are things that need development. But you just love his playing personality, his relentless competitiveness, snap after snap. I mean, few defensive players I looked at. I probably looked at overall, not just defensive players, probably 225 guys this year. You know, I'm a one-man scouting service, Dan. So, you know, I, I did about 225 <laughs> guys. So, um, but his his level of intensity just, you know, you, you love watching the kid play football. I mean, you love to have those guys because you can – teach technique you can teach certain things you it's very hard to teach guys that don't play hard all the time to play hard all the time and did you see similar things in camp sample i loved camp sample by the way i mean i and and to be honest with you he was a guy i knew nothing about hmm. tulane had two guys they had camp sample and patrick johnson and patrick johnson got drafted late i, I liked him a lot too I, I thought he was better than already got drafted by the eagles but but camp sample I really liked his tape and he grew on me because Cam Sample is not an explosive, oh my God, kind of player. Um, another guy, super competitive. Um, as a pass rusher, just relentless, speed, velocity, not bendy necessarily, you know, or flexible. You know who he reminded me of? Unfortunately, he weighs 15, 20 pounds less. So that, and that's a factor. He really reminded me and made me think of, of Cameron Jordan of the Saints. I mean, I thought he was a very similar player stylistically neither one are not guys who win necessarily with their first move they win more with their secondary move they win with hand placement they win with a feel for leverage and timing and and power i really liked camp samples game i mean to me if he was 15 pounds heavier he could have been a top 40 pick you know and he and by the way his athletic testing numbers were really really good all right, let's wrap up with two more offensive linemen. After selecting Jackson Carmen, they came back to the O-line and drafted Deontay Smith, a tackle out of ECU, and Trey Hill, a center from Georgia. How about your thoughts on those two guys and, yeah. and their potential to develop? Yeah, I think Smith is one of those guys. He's a potential guy um, because he's, he's long. He's got a lean, athletic frame. He does have long arms, if that matters. Um, 
to me, he's a player you draft based on his athletic and movement traits with the idea of what you hope he can become with coaching and experience. I think his balance was not very good. Um, I think his body control was not very good. You know, I think overall his, his fundamental technique needs work. So you draft a guy, he's got very good traits. You, the issue will be his, his weight. Uh, from what I read, he played under 300. I guess he got to 305 on his pro day, whether he can play at that. Time will tell. Um, obviously, being in an NFL weight room now will be different. Um, but, you know, there were positive signs in his game. But I think there were also a lot of things where if you're an O-line coach, you say, hey, we need to work on that. Um, and then Trey Hill, you know, Trey Hill's the Georgia kid, obviously played a high level of college football. Um, I kind of like Trey Hill. You know, again, centers are hard. I and mean, I'll be the first to admit they're even they're hard for me to evaluate. Um, but. I, I, he also, you could see him at guard too. I, I guess, do they see him at center? I think they see him at center, but he'll obviously, you know, cross train at the guard and center spots. Yeah. I mean, he, he played a strong man's game, Dan, you know, power strength. I mean, there were some one-on-one -on -one blocks in which he took deep tackles to the ground and we're talking in the SEC. Um, I think he's got some movement ability too. I, you know, again, centers are very hard for me to understand as to where do they get drafted you know that's one of those positions unless you're just exceptionally special i i don't know how that works how teams see centers um but i think another guy you know they drafted a lot of guys that really play hard and and i'm sure that was a particular thing within the organization that hey we want guys with a real with really outstanding playing personalities and relentless competitiveness and you know you've always feel you can teach those guys some technique things but you really you know playing like that's in a guy's dna usually and and hills another guy just like that we're talking to Greg Cosell. I've only got you for a couple more minutes, so let's hit free agency real quickly. The Bengals were big spenders for the second year in a row. Trey Hendrickson, Larry yeah. Ogunjobi, Chidobe Awuje, Mike Hilton, Eli Apple, Riley Reef. Uh, what are your thoughts on some of the guys that the Bengals added? There's a couple of names there, but I love, I always loved Mike Hilton. Loved Mike Hilton. You know, as at his best, a terrific slot corner, and that's what he is. He's a slot corner arguably the best blitzing slot corner in the NFL, but smaller guy, but tough, competitive, physical, will play the run, willing to mix it up. Like I said, a great blitzer. Uh, to me, when I saw they signed Mike Hilton, I, I thought that was, you know, one of those under the radar guys, no one's going to say, well, Mike Hilton's a, an all pro or a hall of famer, but I just think another guy, it just seems to me, and, and, you know, you're closer to the organization than I am, but it seems to me they're really trying to build with guys who were super competitive, you know, I mean, it goes back to their draft choice. We talked about that Jamar chase, you know, great example with pick one that they're trying to get guys who just have relentless competitiveness and energy and intensity. And, you know, it's, it's really good to have those guys. I mean, I think Hendrickson's another great example of that. I know he had 10 plus sacks. No one would sit here and say, boy, that guy has unbelievable athletic and physical traits. I mean, they're, they're obviously above average, but I think when all said and done, you're dealing with a guy that is super intense, super competitive, gets a lot of secondary sacks because he ju you know, just doesn't give up. I mean, they're, they're, they seem to be developing a type here. Is that something that, you know, you've talked with people about? Is that, has that been a, a defining mandate within the organization? No question about it, particularly with this year's draft. You know, last year, every player they drafted except for one was the captain of his college team. So right, it seemed right. like last year was the character year. And this year, it seems like it's the effort, motor, intensity year. I mean, that's, you know, you, you, look, uh, is, is every draft pick going to hit? Of course not. No, not. That just doesn't happen. We can't sit here and say which ones will or won't. But the point is, is a lot of people truly believe that playing with the intensity of a guy like Chase or Joseph Asai or, or Hendrickson um, or Mike Hilton, you know, talking about the free agents, um, that that can't be taught, that that's in your DNA. And, and they really have focused on that. And again, there's many reasons why teams win and lose. I mean, obviously, if Joe Burrow is back healthy and becomes a great, great player, hey, the quarterback in this league, we know he drives a lot of things. But, you know, they're building a team here of high intensity players. And I, I just think as a general principle, that's a good thing. 
if I had 20 hours with you instead of 20 minutes, I would use them all, but you've been very generous with your time and you've got a lot of things on your plate. So I'll let you go. Thank you so much for doing this. I know uh, my audience loves it. Dan, I really appreciate it. Thanks for asking me. It's an awesome day when you get to talk football with Greg Cosell. Greg was kind enough to send me his written scouting reports on the six Bengals draft picks he studied this year, including Jackson Carmen. He wrote that the Bengals' second-round draft pick is, quote, competitive and intense with a little bit of a nasty streak. Jackson helped lead the Clemson Tigers to a 39-3 record during his career, three appearances in the college football playoff, and a national championship as a freshman. For the last two years, he started every game at left tackle, protecting the blind side of the number one pick in this year's draft, Trevor Lawrence. And now, he's coming home. I talked to the former Fairfield High School standout this week. So you were the Bengals' second-round draft pick this year. Your Clemson teammate and friend, T. Higgins, was the Bengals' second-round draft pick last year. And when T. was drafted, he surprised some of us by saying that the Bengals were his dream team we didn't realize that about him but he's a Bengals fan and has been for years because A.J. Green was his football hero in your case was this also the dream scenario for you to get the opportunity to play professionally so close to home yes sir just to be able to be close to my family and to be able to be a part of such a rich tradition of office alignment and to be in such a you know saying unique city in the country I feel like this is definitely a best case scenario so I'm super excited to be home and how about the, the members of your family? They're beyond excited. Words can't explain. You know what I mean? So you have a tie, a good tie, to one of the greatest offensive linemen ever to play for the Bengals, Willie Anderson. You worked extensively with Willie in the run-up to the draft. What are some of the most important things you've learned from him? And, and just share a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, Willie's been an awesome mentor to me. And we first met at the Nike opening in Beaverton, Oregon, when he was coaching there. And just being able to see someone who's been through it all at the highest level and being able to learn from him and pick apart things from his brain has just been the ultimate blessing. And to have someone like that in your corner really is like truly awesome. So I've been able to learn things from just like mentality and professionalism and more so like philosophical things and also just like technique and work and, you know what I'm saying, different things that go and tie into offensive line play. So it's been really good to be able to work with Coach Willie. Did you have a... Uh a strong feeling that the Bengals might draft you? Yeah, I definitely knew it was a possibility. Um, you know what I'm saying? From hearing a lot of different teams and also knowing that the Bengals were uh, projected to be needing offensive linemen, uh, it was definitely something that was discussed. They made a trade in the second round going down from 38 to 46. Did that influence your thinking at all? I definitely didn't know. Like, I mean, like, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, oh, I knew everything was going to be perfect, but, like, it was definitely interesting to see, you know what I'm saying, what was going on behind the scenes and just to think about it, but I'm glad how everything turned out. As I mentioned, you blocked for Trevor Lawrence in college. Now you're going to a block for Joe Burrow in the NFL. You faced Joe in the national championship game a couple of years ago. Unfortunately for you, uh, he played out of his mind and LSU won <laughs> that game. Uh, but what were your observations of Joe in the run-up to that game and during that game and, and your feelings about him now? And one of my favorite things about watching a player is being able to see how intelligent they are and how they really just like have a feel for the game. And when I watch Joe, just knowing just how smart he is really just stands out. And the decisions he's able to make and the speed and accuracy that he plays with is really remarkable. And that's something that obviously showed up in our game. So it's been really cool to be able to watch his journey and even more amazing to see how it all came around full circle. So I'm excited. You are expected to come in and compete for a starting spot at guard immediately, making that transition from tackle to guard. I know you played some guard in high school, but what are some of the challenges associated with moving from tackle to guard? Mostly predominantly just being more so in a three-point stance compared to a two-point stance, because in college, about 90% of my snaps were from a two-point stance. So just getting more comfortable taking snaps, uh, taking pass sets out of a three-point stance and being more comfortable with that. And also switching over to the right side and getting more used to that as well. But I think it's going to be a great transition. I'm excited for the challenge. What will you do between now and training camp to further prepare yourself for the NFL? I'll definitely be training every day. I'll be working with my coaches, you know what I'm saying, here uh, at the Bengals. And also being able to train with guys like Coach Willie and Coach Paul and also Duke Manyweather of all really help prepare me for the next level. Coach Paul, former Bengals uh, offensive line coach, Paul Alexander, he told me you worked with uh, him about 10 times 
uh, last year and leading up to the draft. Did you learn anything particularly valuable from Paul? I think Paul's just, just like Coach Willie, a legend in his own right, and being able to learn all types of things from him as far as his off the field and on the field. But on the field specifically, I think he's just a really great technique coach. It really helps. He's a great teacher. It really helps people understand, you know what I'm saying, what exactly they're supposed to be doing. So different things in pass protection and as far as his like footwork and hand placement, I think he's uh, done a great job. The roster has really turned over in the last couple of years, and there's really an impressive young core now on this Cincinnati roster, yourself included. Do you feel like you're kind of getting in on the ground floor of something special? Definitely, definitely. I think there's definitely something special cooking up here in Cincinnati and just being able to see just all the different, like, you know what I'm saying, levels of talent that we're, that we're bringing in from all positions. And also just, I think it's a really bright future for us. I know you had back surgery in January. What did you have done and how are you doing? I played the last five games of the 2020 season with a herniated disc in my back and I had surgery in January. And since then I've done full rehab uh, rehabilitation been training, had a pro day, and honestly, I feel great. I'm far ahead of where most people are after a surgery like that. And honestly, I'm just super excited to be able to get to work. Last question. You haven't signed your contract yet, so you do not have, uh, you know, that nice signing bonus that I'm sure you're looking forward to. But do you have anything in mind for your first big purchase as a, a professional athlete? I think for my first purchase... Man, probably probably just some skyline to be honest with you, man. <laughs> Skyline's been my favorite since I was a little kid. So be able to go back there, get a couple of cheese coney, some sky fires, what I'm looking forward to. That's a good answer. You don't even have to wait for the signing bonus. Uh, to right. So turn skyline, that if, you're, if you're watching this skyline, you know who to call. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. It's light and refreshing with a hint of fruit flavor. On Thursday, the Bengals announced the 17 former players who will make up this year's Ring of Honor ballot. Two players will be voted in by season ticket members and suite owners and will be added to Hall of Famers Paul Brown and Anthony Munoz to make up this year's inaugural class. I'm proud to say that one of the 17 Bengals greats on the Ring of Honor ballot is my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham. Congratulations, my friend, on joining former teammates Ken Anderson and Ken Riley and more recent stars like Chad Johnson and Willie Anderson on the Ring of Honor ballot. Can you describe what it means to be on that initial ballot? Ooh, humbling is is the, the biggest word. You know, I think about uh, all those players, and the first thing I thought about um, when I saw the list is took me right back to 1981, you know, when we had such good success. We had a lot of good players that really gelled and played well together you know that year 81 and 82 we had as many wins as any team in the national football league you know we we won uh, 19 games regular season games in those two years with strike shortened year was seven and two in 1982 after a 12 and four season and you know made it to, made the super bowl run in that uh 1981 season and i mean all the memories of those guys you know uh it's just it just brought back full circle, like tremendous memories. And to be uh, on a list with those guys was just humbling, <laughs> to say the least. There's no question about it. And, you know, I just – the other thing that it did was, as I looked at all the guys on the, on the list, it just uh, made me realize how fortunate I am to have played with or covered all of them, you know, seen them all play. It's uh, – it really has been – a pure joy in that regard to a football junkie, you know, to be able to have lived the dream that you had as a kid to play in the league and then to play, you know, a lengthy time and and uh, um, be on a Super Bowl team and then get into the broadcast side of it and still be associated with the game and see all these great players and, you know, having to broadcast a, a Super Bowl that the team played in. I mean, those are like all all the things that – come flooding back to me when I start looking at the list of, uh, of all these players, not only the 17 on the ballot, but when the celebration of the 50th anniversary, when all the guys started coming back and, you know, have reunion time with all these guys. And it's like, man, it just, it brought you back to, you know, quite a while ago, man, <laughs> it brought you back to your youth. There's no question about it. It was a lot of fun. So as a season ticket holder, I'm going to have to recuse myself because I would go lap them, lap them <laughs> with my two picks <laughs> as your friend and broadcast partner. So we are going to put Sam Horde in charge of the Horde family ballot, and he is leaning toward Ken and Ken, Anderson and Riley. And that 
makes total sense. I mean, they're obviously guys that are on the fringe of and should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And the two candidates that are in with Paul Brown and Anthony Munoz are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the two guys that are on the to start the Ring of Honor. So that uh, more, more than worthy, to say the least. And two, you know, the similarities, they played different positions, obviously, but so many similarities in terms of, you know, them as people and not just football players. And Kenny Riley was a quarterback himself, you know, in college. So he had that, he had such an unbelievable quiet swagger to him. You know, he was tremendously confident, but not the least bit cocky. And Kenny Anderson the same way. Uh, yeah, they, they, the, the Kens are special people, uh, as, as well as being special football players. Football, I think, is just part of what those guys are, though. And, um, you know, Paul Brown w- would be proud of a lot of these guys on all these lists because he was all about um, football is just the beginning of your work life, your work career. And he would always say, you know, now you have a chance to go to your life's work when your football career was over, however it was over, whether you were cut by everybody, retired, or whatever the case may be. And he would call it, you know, it was just the beginning of your life's work. And you have an opportunity to begin your life's work in a very, very positive way. What are you going to do after that? And so many of these guys, you know, reinvented themselves and had a good run with their life after football. I think Paul Brown would be very proud of that as well. No question about it. The Bengals have not announced yet what the plan will be going forward. Will there be four more guys next year? Will it be two? Will it be a player every year going forward? We don't know that yet. Uh, but I do know that at some point, Lapham 62 <laughs> is going to be up on that wall, and that's going to be an awesome sight. You know, you think about uh, the fact that, you know, that it's, it's going to be up there for your kids to see and your grandkids and your great-grandkids, if you're lucky enough to be around for great-grandkids, whatever, that, that part of it, you know, starts to, starts to bog your mind a little bit, um, you know, the legacy aspect of, of that kind of thing. Um, even just, just to be on the ballot is just stunning, <laughs> it really is. It, it's, a, it's a stunning situation. It really, really makes you shake yourself a little bit. Well, it's a well-deserved honor, and uh, I'm thrilled for you. Thank you. Let's move on to uh, the draft. We've had about a week to reflect on the 10 players that the Bengals selected. You've had some great conversations about the guys they picked on your podcast, your In the Trenches podcast, which is awesome. I have been binging now for a couple of weeks, and it's great. What are some of your biggest takeaways on this uh, 10-player group? Yeah, I think, I think the fact that um, they did – you know, stick to their guns in terms of how they had their their board rated. I mean, you look at it and um, seven guys in the tr- in the pits in the trenches. You know, it's uh, th- that's that's kind of amazing. One wide receiver, four down linemen as such, three uh, offensive linemen, uh, place kicker, and a running back. So, in the nineteen or in the twenty twenty draft, they went three linebackers. You know, in that draft, so their board they stayed true to their board. And, and people might say, oh, you know, well. How come they didn't draft a quarterback, uh, a cornerback, I should say? Why wasn't a cornerback drafted? I'm sure they had every intention of maybe drafting one, but when it got to that point, you know, the board, you're not usually that far off. You're not 15 picks off in terms of guys. So, you know, it's, it's the guy goes and you pick another. And they're heavily criticized for taking the place kicker in the fifth round. Well, you know, when they made the trade and got the additional two fourth-round picks, it made it easier to do that. Darren Simmons knew he had to maybe pick a round higher. He said that. So if there was one draftable kicker in the draft and everybody had him pegged as a sixth-rounder, go ahead and get him in the fifth is their mindset and make sure you get him and a guy that's going to put points on the board for you and all that sort of thing. And always, because, Dan, we've been around each other for the draft many years now, how many times have we heard the team say, we had him as a fourth-round guy, we got him in the fifth. We had him as a fifth-round guy, got him in the sixth. Who knows? Maybe they had Hill and the kicker in the same type of value, and they got both mm-hmm. because Hill makes it to the sixth round, right. you know, the center guard. That could, could have been the case, or it could have been the kicker and somebody else that they got whenever in the draft. So everybody's board is different, um, but all you can do is trust the way you evaluate it. You put a lot of time and, and uh, spend a lot of resources in doing that, so why not live by your board, and, and that's what they've done. 
I asked somebody from the front office the following question. How many times when you were on the clock, or actually how many times when you were almost on the clock, did somebody get picked one or two spots ahead of you that you were that that was going to be your guy. And he said, that happened a couple of times. I mean, that's the way it goes. And then you instantaneously move on to the next guy on the list. Exactly. And that's why when they traded down, uh, they, they said, you know, here's, here's guys that we feel comfortable with. They started to go, I'm sure. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of those guys that they were in that range. But they, they, you never trade down more spots than you feel you have a comfort level of players. Not just at one position. I mean, but as a community on that draft board all the position groups you have to have if you're going to trade down you know five spots you have to have five players because they could all go i mean look at the run that happened on edge rushers at the end of the first round four out of five picks look at the run on offensive linemen when they traded down you know people like oh they're all the offensive line prospects are going they felt good about the one that they got feel felt like he might be there they would feel good about him and probably another one or two and whichever one was there, I'm good with that. Plus the fact that I can double down in the fourth round, you know, with my offensive or defensive line, and it worked out for them. It worked out exactly the way they had hoped. Yeah, had Jackson Carmen been selected in that interim period between 38 and 46, Sam Cosme was still on the board. Yeah. Dylan Radens was still on the board. So there were still some highly rated offensive linemen that they could have pivoted to if they lost the guy they really wanted. Uh, you're right. And, and, you know, with Tevin Jenkins, I like him. I think he's a good football player. I think he's going to have a good career. I think he's nasty. I think he's physical. But athletically, I think uh, that Jackson Carmen is a better athlete. Mm. I think I, I think Jenkins started to slide a little bit based on maybe that. N- not slide. I mean, a lot of people had him. I didn't think he'd be there. I thought he'd be a first-round pick. And for him to have been there, it was like, wow. You know, so um, – but a lot of these linemen that I talk to people around the league about that I can trust with respect to offensive line evaluation, they're like, uh, is so-and-so going to be there at 38? Cross your fingers and hope so. How about this guy? How about that guy? So they were all in that category, and, and there was a handful. So they felt comfortable enough to move back spots where they felt like there was going to be one there for them and, and then pick up the two fourths. I mean, getting two of those fourth-round picks when they – they liked. They had three pros, uh, four prospects, and they got three of them in that fourth round. They had four prospects identified that they'd really like to have left the draft with, and they walk out with three. That's pretty darn strong. Do you know who the fourth was? Do you? <laughs> I don't. I don't either. <laughs> You've got an impish grin, so I don't know if you're telling me the truth. In any case, uh, I pointed the lap signal into the nighttime sky above Paul Brown Stadium this week, and that means we've got Ask Lap questions that were submitted via Twitter. Let's start with this question from Dale. Who's the starting offensive line in week one? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think uh, obviously they, they say that uh, they're going to put uh, Jackson Carmen in there at the right guard position. They slotted him for that. Trey Hopkins, is what, how, how good is that ACL going to be? in week one will he be able to to line up and play right away uh in in the first week if he's healthy i think he does so at the uh, right offensive tackle position riley reef is going to be penciled in there uh jonah williams at left tackle and i think that either hakeem adenogy or xavier suafilo are my two possibilities at the uh, at the left guard position over quentin spain i think quentin he's he's in the mix he's in the mix as well you know Suofilo is an interesting guy. Watch him, and it's it's like he's very smart. Uh, he's he's a he's a, it's it's weird. I could see him getting released, or I could or I could see him being the guy because physically I watch him and it's like he looks like he's in pain, you know, with his movement, and that that's a concern. Um, so yeah, I mean, Quentin Spain's in that. Mix. I think that left guard position is you know is is going to be the interesting one to watch because it's going to be a, a battle royale. Is Michael Jordan, Akeem Adeniji, uh, Suafilo might be in the mix there. Quentin Spain might be in the mix there. Um, you know it, that that one that one could be I think the most interesting of uh, of all the spots. I do hope that that uh, Frank Pollock works with Jonah Williams on keeping the width of the pocket. Jonah is a is a fantastic athlete. And he can widen the pocket. He has a habit of taking his set a little bit too vertical and turning and giving a soft edge and, and shrinking the width of the pocket. So if he can somehow work with him on widening, the tackle's responsibility is to keep the pocket wide. The center and guard's responsibility is to keep the pocket deep. 
So if uh, that's that's what Jonah really needs to work on, and it's gonna, I think it's gonna be a battle royale though. You look at the guys that they drafted; uh, they're they're gonna be thrown into mix and compete. Um, Adenogy, I think, is gonna be in the in the competition. Uh, Billy Price will be in it in the interior. I mean, it's it's uh, they they've got plenty of bodies. It's not like they're short of bodies. Fred Johnson is still out there on the edge competing, and he's he's played some guard. The the thing is too that the position versatility aspect of it. So many guys can play more than one position. So it could be that the spots that they line up initially to start tr- training camp, they don't end up at to start the uh, start the regular season. I think Frank Pollock is the kind of guy I'm putting my five best out there. It's going to be open season, guys, open competition. Um, but, yeah, I th- Suofilo, I think, is going to be a huge X factor. Like I said, I could see him maybe getting snaps or maybe not even making the team and everything mm-hmm. in between. It's, it's, he's going to be an interesting guy to watch. The next question comes from Steve O. What position might the Bengals still target in free agency? You know, you think that I was thinking at some point they would draft a corner, you know, and, and uh, I don't know what they, how happy they are with the college free agents that they've signed at some of these positions. But if, if there's a, a veteran corner out there that lowers his price tag, um, and June 1st is, is another big date because, you know, that's the new cap year. So everybody's salary cap changes after June 1st. That's why you hear a lot of these guys oh, well, you know, the, the Aaron Rodgers thing will heat up in, after June 1st. Such and such will heat up after June 1st because it's a whole new fiscal year as such. So if the Bengals are really serious about somebody, you know, it would be good to be able to get it done before June 1st when there's more teams in the bidding process, more teams in the party. So if they do have somebody identified, uh, I'd like to see them, you know, try to get it done in a timely fashion. The other part of it is I do think that their biggest priority right now Bates and Hubbard you know they want to make sure that they've got money set aside to extend those guys they don't want them going into the last year of their contract and then playing lights out and it's like geez now we can't afford them you know they have a habit of extending so in my mind I think the first thing that they always think of is take care of their own that have performed for them so I think priority number one will be the extension of one or two of those guys potentially before signing other guys free agents. That's a great point, and I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes people look at the Bengals' salary cap situation and say, boy, they still have plenty of money left. Why aren't they spending it on somebody? Well, they do. They just wait until training camp is just about over and then extend their own guys to put some of that signing bonus toward that year's cap, which is a very smart way of doing business. As for positions that they might still uh, sign somebody uh, at this year, I I think they could still use veteran linebacker. I I think we talked in a previous podcast about the notion of bringing Josh Bynes back. Maybe that happens. Maybe, I don't know, Quan Alexander's still out there, uh, somebody like that. But I think they could still use a vet at that position group. I I agree with you, Dan. You know, I think that uh, I think the young linebackers have all shown that they're capable uh, but they're still they're still green, you know. They're still developing, and year one to year two is a is a is a real big development year. There's no question about that. I mean, in terms of I shouldn't say development, I should say, um, you know, you start to understand the game. The game slows down. You see things, you know, more differently than you did as a as a rookie player. But still, um, there's there's nothing better than having a veteran presence at any position group when it hits the fan because those guys have been there, done that, they've seen it, they've, they know how to attack it, you know, uh, what, what do we have to do to solve this problem? Um, that, that kind of experience on game day I think is very invaluable. All right, the next question I'm going to combine two. Rob asked, are you expecting a winning record this season? Roar Sports Media asks, what's a reasonable number of wins to expect if the Bengals stay reasonably healthy? You know, you look at the division, everybody's tooting the horn for Cleveland as a Super Bowl contender. And, uh, you know, Barry has done a tremendous job up there. There's no question. He's, he's really got himself a coach that he feels comfortable with and I think has done a pretty darn good job in the draft and free agency the last couple of years. So that, that organization, you know, had high picks for such a long period of time. It was a matter of time before you start to hit on some of them. And I think they started to do that. And uh, they've, they've got the right mix of, of talent and coaching, I think, um, 
to bring themselves to another level. So I think with good reason, they're highly regarded. And we know what Baltimore's like. And Pittsburgh with Ben, you know, I mean, Pittsburgh's Pittsburgh. They've never had a losing season with Mike Tomlin as the head coach. Never. So <laughs> division's tough. I mean, you know, you, uh, you go two and four in the division. You, you may have played some pretty good football. And, you know, you're two games under 500 just from the division alone. So, I mean, if they if they creep to the 500 mark, I mean, if they're if they're an eight and eight football team, I, I eight look, and nine this year. Yeah, that's right, eight and nine or nine and eight. Yeah, yeah. So if they if they creep toward that that type of, of, of scenario, um, you know, I, I could see I could see some some reason to have optimism, particularly if they're in every game. You know, they, they avoid getting torched. You know, you should be beyond the point of having somebody put up over 500 yards on you and uh, 40 points mm-hmm. and, you know, not being able to get anything done offensively and, and uh, not score a touchdown. You know, th- those, ga- those days should be long gone. So, um, I, you know, you can, you can see that there should be vast improvement and it should dictate in the record. I mean, you know, eight wins is doubling their win total from last year. They went from two to four. Go four to eight, and then you know pretty soon you're climbing that ladder of success. Um, but it, the division's tough. I mean, it's it's as tough a division as there is in football. So it's uh, it's no easy task to if they could go 500 in the division, three and three in the division, that would be a great sign. That would be a great sign that they're you know they're starting to uh, get where they need to get because that AFC North can be a battle on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, you nailed it. All three of those teams made the playoffs last year, so it's very hard to come away with a great record within your own division in the AFC North. Based on opponents' record last year, the Bengals have the sixth toughest schedule in the NFL, and the AFC North is a big part of that. Their opponents this coming year went 144 and 128 last year, and in addition to the AFC North, you throw in one of the Super Bowl teams, Kansas City. Yep. You throw in the team that hosted the NFC Championship game, Green Bay. That's eight games. That's nearly half your schedule. So I do think a winning record or a game under 500, now that it's a 17-game schedule, would be a, a good target for this next season. And then the following year is when you try to get uh, hope to be back into playoff contention. All right, next question from Greg. Who's the Bengals' biggest steal? in this year's draft you know that's that one's going to be interesting because until you get these guys here and start you know working them out and seeing what they really are but i've got i've got a feeling about this wired hubert guy Mm. you know i mean i I think that this kid is i think he's got he's got something to him 34 tackles for loss 20 uh 20 quarterback sacks and they let him you know, go up and down the line of scrimmage and, and attack on his own. I mean, I, I, if they get 15 snaps a game as an edge rush in some way, shape, or form from this guy and, and special teams snaps as well, that's great value for a seventh-round pick, you know. So, I mean, I think when I look at it, I think, boy, potentially there, there's a guy that could, that could really give them a lot more than most seventh-round picks would be given their football team. I also uh, look at Trey Hill, and I think, all right, hmm, he may not – if Trey Hopkins is not available at the center position, what if this kid shows that he's capable or if he shows that he can compete at guard? He may be another candidate to play left guard. I, I, like, I think he's – as a six-round guy, I, th- I think there's some, some vast potential there. I think Deontay Smith is more of a developmental guy. You know, I, I think other guys, you know, like Sample and Shel- Shelvin, I mean, they've, got, they've already got roles identified for those guys, I think. And some, some of these other guys are like, don't, don't exactly know, you know, what they're going to be able to give us. But the, if they can give us these kind of things, wow, that would be uh, pretty exciting. I'm going to say Joseph Osai. Now, he's a third-round draft pick, so it's hard to really look right. at a guy taking that high as a steal. But That's just right. based on where he was generally rated in comparison to where the Bengals got him, the athletics consensus board where they took like 50 big boards and then came up with a number, had him as 42 overall. That would be the 10th pick in the second round. The Bengals got him with the fifth pick of the third round, so that's basically an entire round after where he was rated. Right, and I think, I mean, I think they have big plans for him.
him, and I think he's going to live up to those plans. Sometimes guys, for whatever reason, runs on positions are made, you know, like, and, and the run was made before your value came up, and then all of a sudden a run, another run's not made until, wow, you should have gone sooner, but you didn't go when that first run happened, and you were one of the first guys left, but other positions ran, and then your, your position came up again. And that's how guys end up sliding around. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not, it has nothing to do with their ability and their talents. It's just you know, mathematics, the nature of the board, the nature of needs, the nature of what teams are, how they've stacked their boards or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, this, this guy, he's got the fastest 10-yard time in the draft you know, from the edge guys. That's, that's some explosiveness right there. And I do think he's, he's slightly stiff in his hips a little bit, you know, but I think, man, he's – and he's a guy, like, has been talked about. You've mentioned it more than once, Dan. Effort, you know, play with your hair on fire, man. He's one of those guys, and he's, he might be numero uno in terms of those guys. And that's, that's another reason I like, uh, you know, I like this, this kid, Wyatt Hubert, in the seventh round. He, he's, he's like that. You know, they, they give him a comp of Hendrickson, same type of dimensions, body type-wise, and the way they play. And uh, there's nothing wrong with effort, guys. And in football in general, and particularly in the AFC North, you have to run the ball and have some sort of a running game, some modicum of run, so you can throw it. And then defensively, you have to stop the run to have the right to rush the passer. <laughs> they only had 17 sacks. Why? Because they were sieve on the run. You know, you got to stop the run and and, uh, and and have generate the right to rush the passer, and they should have a lot more weapons on the edge to be able to rush the passer this year. The next two questions are similar. Jordan asks, what's the difference between Frank Pollock and Jim Turner's techniques and teaching style? MT asks, are offensive line positions the easiest to coach up? Not that it's easy, but where coaching can make a world of difference. Yeah, I think I think coaching can make a world of difference in in the offensive line, and I think implementation of techniques is are big, and I think that Frank Pollock, having played nine years in the league, understands that every body type is different. Some guys are high waisted, short arms. Some guys are you know long arms and not much of an upper body, but have long legs. Some guys don't have any length of their legs, but you know it's it's and it's everything in between. And, you know, the magic number is 33 in terms of arm length to play tackle. Well, there are tackles uh, that are in the Hall of Fame that don't have 33-inch arm length. Um, And some of them, your arms didn't make any difference because you had to put your fists in your chest and you couldn't use your hands or your arms. So it didn't matter how long your arms were back then. But now that you're able to extend your hands and, and, you know, attack people that way, arm length is a big deal. But a lot of these guys overcome short arms with unbelievable feet because they're in a phone booth because their arms are shorter so they're going to be guys are going to get into them as such and now you're you're in a war in a phone booth and you're battling and who's got feet to stay balanced who's who's on the ground who's not on the ground so you're you're a lot of these guys get to this level and have overcome their short arms because of their excellent feet sometimes it's vice versa guy didn't have great feet looks like his feet are in concrete he's got 35 inch arms so he can recover with his arms, and then his feet come. The guys with the short arms recover with their feet, and then their arms come. It's, so it, you make up for your deficiencies. And, uh, and I think Frank Pollitt's techniques and his implementation of them, his understand, he, he has a, an acute understanding of not everybody's the same because he played nine years in the league, and he saw all different kinds of body parts and types and all that. So it's like I, I'm going I'm to suggest this. This work for this guy who's built similar to you. So I'm, I'm not going to make you do a technique just because I think this is the way it's got to be done. You know, I'm going to mollify, modify, adjust what I'm doing to work with your body. And I think that's where Frank has a, a very good understanding. And I think that's where the players are going to respond to him big time with that. What was your wingspan coming out of Syracuse in the 74 NFL draft? That's a good question. They didn't, they didn't do that stuff. I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's so, when I think back, I mean, my gosh, man, the, the senior bowl was, there were, there were owners there. There were head coaches there. There were GMs there. There were line coach. When we did one-on-one pass rush, it was like, I'm looking around. It's a who's who of the NFL. It was because there was, you know, there was nothing there was no IT. There were no cell phones. There, were, there wasn't anything. It was it was crazy, 
and uh, yeah, they I never really remember getting my wingspan uh, measured as such. That's a good question. You look like about a 33 and three quarter guy, guy to me. <laughs> <laughs> Next question comes from Adam. How improved should the defensive line be this year? You know, I, when you look at it, you, it, it should be. You know, you've, you've, added, you've added much more talent. You know, let, let's face it, the guys that they were rolling in there at the end of the season, they literally got off the street. And they were effort guys. I'm not saying that they weren't, you know, just punching a clock and just getting through. They were giving everything they've got. But, you know, they just, they just weren't uh, NFL starting caliber players in some cases that were, they were throwing out there. And they got, they got taken advantage of in some cases as well. So uh, you look at the depth and what, they, what they've done and, uh, and created, creating that depth, they, they should be much better defensively. I mean, G, DJ Reader hopefully will have a full season. Um, Joby is going to be a, a factor, obviously. Trey Hendrickson is going to be a factor. There's no question about that. And then what they did in the draft, you know, getting four guys. There's there's seven players right there. How many are they going to keep? Are they going to keep nine? They're going to keep ten. Um, you know, you, you've got uh, you got other guys that uh, you know that were injured uh, during the course of the season that uh, that didn't didn't finish uh, finish the year. Um, Ren. You know, Ren has got some potential. Ren, he went down early with a uh, patella tendon issue. I mean, that, that's a, those, those type of injuries are, are severe, obviously. Daniels is still out there, and they get, brought him back to Cincinnati and, and, uh, and got him, you know, taken care of. So there's some depth there. Geno's still out there. Uh, you look at the list, he's kind of down in terms of the veterans that are still out there in free agency. And a lot of that is probably still wants too much money so I you know there's there's things that they it can be tweaked but there's no doubt in my mind that I think on a snap-by-snap basis uh they'll be putting a much better product out there as a whole from a defensive line perspective than they did last year I mean DJ Reader and Larry Ogunjobi is such a huge upgrade over what they wound up having to play a defensive tackle for most of the year and God love Gino for trying. I have so much admiration for him for gutting it out with that bad shoulder injury, but unfortunately playing one armed he was completely ineffective and it was hard to watch. It was. I mean they they uh they struggled and you know you look at uh um you look at guys like Xavier Williams and Christian Covington and they they gave everything everything they had but you know it just wasn't uh it just wasn't quite quite enough uh you know freedom uh however you Aiken Mullendoon there you go <laughs> freedom uh, but you know Tupau you know with with him coming back after opting out last year that that's another big body guy wide body guy that they could have used last year big time uh they they've got some space eaters there's there's Absolutely no question about it, and I'm very interested in seeing Tyler Shelvin, um, how that guy will impact it. I, I, think, I think he's going he's gonna to give them a lot of quality snaps. I, I think it's going to be tougher to run on this football team uh, inside between the tackles than it was last year. Last year it was uh, open season. This year I think you need a hunting license. We'll see. <laughs> the next question comes from Dustin. Do you see a scenario – in which rookie running back Chris Evans gets a lot of plays in the slot. It seems like we are somewhat light in depth in the wide receiver room. Yeah, I mean, depending on what kind of uh, you know availability he'll be on game day, um, will he be able to get in the mix on special teams? Will he be active? Will he be deactivated? Will he be a practice squad guy? Um, there's no, no telling. I mean, just because a guy gets drafted doesn't necessarily mean Oh, his role is going to be this. You have to go out and earn earn that role, but they're going to give him every opportunity, I think. And you know, when you look at it, uh, they've got one of the best slot receivers in you know in, in all of football. And Tyler Boyd, there's no question about that. But you know, Alex Erickson is gone. Alex Erickson's now a Houston Texan. Um, you know, Mike Thomas can can give you a little bit of both. He can give you you know some some versatility there. It, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that if you go a, a, if you have a, a, a situation where you can say, okay, you have a guy that you can line up as a running back or as a slot receiver. What are you going to do? You're going to play base. You're going to play nickel. How are you going to match up? And they could play with him that way. They did it with Giovanni Bernard. Giovanni Bernard a lot of times lined up as the widest receiver slot. And, you know, the, the, all indications are 
that uh, you know they they can do the the same same type of thing you know with uh, with Chris Evans. So um, versatility is is key. I think he's got that versatility. He was the best player available on their board in their estimation, so they went with him. So the, they like him enough uh, to you know to to make him a Cincinnati Bengal in the in the sixth round. I'm sure they have plans for him. Nate asks, other than the O-line, what position groups are the biggest question marks? Well, you know, going into the draft, the biggest question marks were offensive line, defensive line, wide receiver. And they addressed them, um, offensive line, defensive line, more so than wide receiver. They drafted one wide receiver. Uh, and, you know, free agency is still being, being taken care of. Um, college free agents, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not – real sure that they feel like they got any help there that's going to be consequential but uh, I, I still think that just because you draft those you can't say until you actually have them out there you've got presence draft day was Christmas Eve and Santa Claus came and the presents were delivered you know and now when they go to mini camp when they have the rookie mini camp for the first time the coaches would be able to unwrap the present actually get their hands on guys see guys say what I saw on tape, is that projecting to what I'm seeing right up here up close and personal with this guy? Yeah, it is. Or, hmm, geez, really, it's not. Can he do the things that we're hoping he can do? Until you go through that, and then <laughs> that's just the first step of it. Then you have to put pads on and start to hit. And a lot of guys look like Tarzan, you know, uh, in shorts and T-shirts, and they put pads and helmets on, and they play like Jane. So, you know, you have to go through the entire evaluation process before you even start to think. I've addressed some of these spots. It's like when these grades are given after a draft. How the hell do you know? You don't know for two or three years, you know, on on a lot of guys. Some guys you'll find out right away, but other guys need development. Other guys, you know, just, oh, it didn't work out. Uh, They couldn't make the transition from what they were doing in college to what we were asking them to do in the NFL. Maybe another team they can transition easier to. So it's, it's, it cracks me up when they do these letter grades like it's this one's cookie cutter cut and dry is it but that's what makes the draft great that's what makes the nfl great that's what makes all the conversation great but it's double-edged sword because scouts coaches all these people are like you know my job hangs in the balance with some of this stuff you know and I, I i don't i don't even know right now i have to go through my whole process i went through the the draft process now i have to go the the through the process of seeing what I have and developing in them from that point forward. And it's, a, it's not an overnight process where you're going to get a letter grade, letter grade the day after the draft. The grades are completely worthless, but I check out every one. I, I can't you. help myself. I, I, I think the biggest question mark now is cornerback. They've got a ton yeah. of talent, but Darius Phillips is basically the only guy that's played in a Bengals uniform. So Trey Waynes, Chidabe Awuje. Eli Apple, Mike Hilton, again, that's that's a good talent base that they built up. Now they they've got to introduce each uh, each of them to each other. No, no doubt. I mean, probably at the very beginning of training camp, they're gonna have to have tape with name on their helmets. You know, the the, the strip of tape to identify themselves to each other. It is it's it's a it's a crazy scenario. But yeah, when you look at it, raw talent, raw potential, and a lot of it is proven already. NFL in game proven player but sometimes I mean I know I, I experienced that you go from one team to another even when coaches come in it's a whole new you know whole new day I mean what, what you did in the past really doesn't matter new system new set of eyes evaluating and all that and then when you go from one franchise to another man it's 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 a it's a big difference it doesn't happen just with the snap of a finger so um, and I, I fully expect that it will but not overnight but these guys, they have to learn each other's, you know, strengths and weaknesses. When you start to play well as an offensive line, you know exactly what that guy next to you can and can't do. So you don't make a call to maybe put him in a situation where that's dicey if we can execute that. And, and then if you line up in a certain uh, defensive front, lines up a certain way, or they have a certain skill player in that spot, you know the, make a, a call that help that situation. And that doesn't need help. What call do I make to help the situation that needs help? All those kind of things aren't just done overnight. It takes it takes some time. Um, but I think that uh, I think that they've got they have 
on the hoof, you know, meat on the hoof. They have that. They do have some talent there to work with. I mean, they got a bunch of clay that can be molded by talented artists. We'll see. The last Ask Lap question comes from Tom. Do you see Cam Sample as an inside or an outside guy? I see him uh, more so as an outside guy with the ability to kick down inside and give pass rush inside. But I see him as a, as a you know, but, but he can. I mean, he can line. He's big enough to line up inside and give you snaps. But I see him as a as an edge guy that can, you know, set an edge in that running game and, and pass rush as a, as a defensive end. Uh, but, you know, also if you want to go with your um, NASCAR package, you know, and have quicker guys, he can kick down inside and, and pass rush at defensive tackle. But I think that's part of the beauty of Sample is that position versatility. He can do either for you. And it's not like he can't go in there and play defensive tackle uh, defending the run as a three technique either. But um, I think – Uh, I I think I'd like to see him on the edge more so. He's a talented kid. Thank you to everybody who submitted Ask Lap questions. And happy Mother's Day to Lynn and Sarah. (laughs) I appreciate that very much. And uh, happy Mother's Day to Peg. You got a good celebration planned? We do. We're going to all, it's going to be just a a, a massive get-together. It's going to be, you know, uh, grandkids, cousins, big family day it'll be a lot of fun lots of food probably too much food no such thing yeah no such thing really really (laughs) and and maybe by the end of the day too much adult beverage who knows (laughs) that's going to do it for this episode of the bengals booth podcast brought to you by bud light seltzer refresh the game if you haven't done so already please subscribe and if you have a minute give it a rating or share a comment that helps more bengals fans find this podcast I'm Dan Horde, and thank you for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.